You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 35 of our show, where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and more. We're recording on Thursday, September 24th, 2015. And in the studio, I've got, of course, myself, Victor Marks, Mikey Campbell. Hello. And our esteemed managing editor, Neil. Very, very esteemed. Are we in the studio, really? <sighs> studio of the mind, bro. I mean, I live in a studio apartment, so... <laughs> I have dreams, okay? <laughs> Don't crush my dreams. So we're going to go remote and have a special segment with Daniel Aaron Dilger, who has been out at Apple and has a review unit of the iPhone 6S. We're going to speak with him momentarily. Dan, welcome. So today I understand you were in Cupertino, California. Yes. Uh, I... I was here to uh, pick up the new review models from Apple. What happens? What happens when you go to Apple to pick up a review unit? Uh, they present you with a briefing about the new phone, the new features, run over them, ask what kind of questions you have. Uh, they also had me take a look at the new watch bands, Apple watch bands. There's the two new finish. New, two new finishes of, of the sport watch and then a variety of new bands. And then now they're coordinating the bands, colors, and finish types with the colors that are available for um, the, the leather and rubberized coatings for the back of the iPhone. Right. So there's the fall lineup colors and the, yeah. uh, the fashion colors. Did you get to see the Hermes band? No, they don't have their maze bands here. Oh, darn. I saw them at the event. They're okay. nice. Yeah. So they they take you into into a dark room, like with windows blacked out. They lock the doors. They make sure no one can see, and they show you the device. No, it's just their standard uh, uh, showroom where they okay. where they bring. You know, they have a list. They have you get a time slot, and then you, you know, they come in and they go through all your questions. So they kind of do each person individually different media people and whatever. And what do they want to impress upon you? What are the things that they point out to you as they try and show you the thing? Uh, they review the, the features. I mean, what, what um, make sure you understand what, what's going on so you're not writing about things you don't know about. Uh, they do a lot of description, a, a lot of overview of the technical details, um, particularly the machining that goes into it and the effort behind things instead of just being like, here's a feature, we call it this, they describe uh, what's involved with that. Because I think there's a lot of cases where uh, people will look at features, like if you look at a lot of reviews in the tech, in the tech world, they kind of do checkbox re- check reviews where they say, oh, it has this feature, it has this feature, it has this feature. But they don't really look at how well it's implemented. Um, and then one of the things you've seen recently is, uh, you know, when they're talking about especially the iPad Pro, and they say, oh, it has a, has a stylus. But it's not like the styluses that Steve Jobs was talking about. Right. It's not a stick of made of plastic. It's right. got a battery and a processor and, and all kinds of smarts in it, right? And in addition to that, it's also different from other things that are being marketed as styluses or pins or whatever in terms of what it can do. And also how it works is completely different. But you see in a lot of tech reviews, they don't talk about how it actually works or what's involved with making it work on a certain level. They just say, oh, it has this, you know, checkbox. And we've seen that a lot with um, whether it's 
iPads or phones or whatever. And um, a lot of times they, they look at details like how much RAM it has or how, you know, the screen resolution, things mm. that users might not even be aware of. But what you really feel when you use a device is how, how well it works. Right. How, and, that, and that's something that, you know, Android got a pass for a lot of times, I mean, for many years, having this kind of laggy display that it looked like an iPhone, but it didn't work like one. You know, one of the examples that I think of is the megapixels in a camera and how an 8-megapixel camera is not the same as every other 8-megapixel camera sensor. And one of the things that they showed in the keynote was the work that they'd done to separate cross-bleed between the different colors of pixels. When they were talking about, uh, I think, the screen resolution and, and how they get more pixels on a screen. Right, because there were a lot of phones that came out um, you know, a year or two ago or several years ago that were boasting huge megapixel ratings. But when you look at the pictures that they actually generate, it didn't make the pictures better. It just made them um, bigger in terms of having you have to you have to have more memory to store because you're recording more data. But that data isn't good data. So you're getting a pixelized picture that with a lot of crosstalk and it's not actually better. And some people had a hard time understanding that you know just because you have more more numbers doesn't necessarily make it better. And in addition to examples like that that are you know quite obvious, there's other things like for example with with touch or um, 3D touch which is the new feature to where, uh, in addition to just having multi-touch, where you can record a touch, whether it's on or off, when you touch the screen, you can now touch pressure. And that technology exists. I mean, other, other companies have access to that technology, the screen technology of being able to push on the screen and, and it's registering pressure. But how that's implemented is going to be different. And Apple kind of emphasized that they spent a lot of time working on this. It wasn't something that they just came up with this year uh, because the screens were available, but they had to figure out how to make that useful because there's a lot of ways you could have pressure uh, sensitivity on the screen and implement it in a way that's not useful or not intuitive. And Apple's worked really hard to kind of distill it down so there's a, a very few ways it works initially, whether you're pushing on an icon on the homepage and it pops up you know, useful things that you can do. I call that quick actions. Or whether you're within an app, and uh, for example, in messages, you push on something. Basically, any kind of document, it's very much like right-clicking on the Mac desktop to invoke a quick look, where you have a, um, a file icon, like a PDF, for example, or an email. If you push it, the, the initial hard press does what they call a, a peek, where it shows you a preview of it, and that just dismisses immediately. And if you push it hard, it uh, brings up, if you push it hard again, it brings up a, what they call a um, po- um, beacon, <laughs> beacon pop. The pop actually opens it up. So it's a kind of a, a shortcut for navigating. It's, it's kind of like an extra level of navigation. It's a lot of ways like, a, like right-clicking on the desktop where you have multiple things you can do to something that you're targeting. I really like the 3D touch. Um, it, it's not implemented in a lot of places. I mean, a lot of 3D, a lot of third-party apps don't use it yet, of course, because it's just brand new. So it's mostly Apple's apps that let you do something. But um, in addition to jumping right into some feature in an app, I'm also seeing where you can actually jump into a feature and start using it. So one of the obvious examples is you, know, you, you hard press on the camera, and you can pull up selfie and you immediately have a selfie on instead of turn, opening the camera and then you know looking for the button to turn the camera around. 
and an even faster example is the stopwatch. You know, when you when you hard press on the clock, one of the options is start the stopwatch, and when you do that, it immediately starts. So it opens the clock, and the stopwatch is already going. So there's a lot of examples I think we'll see from third-party developers that similarly do things like that. And one of the examples that they uh, pointed towards was both Facebook and Instagram having a thing where when you hard press on it, one of the options is to post something new. Uh, so it goes right to what you're doing. And another example, for example, is uh, maps. So if you're if you're doing a search for a location, instead of opening maps and having it draw the map and then you know, clicking in the search field to start typing something, it automatically brings you to the search page. So it shows you relevant stuff, and also as you type it, immediately starts showing the results. So it's kind of a, a quicker layer of navigation that lets you jump right into what you're doing. Very cool. So we got the faster processor, we got more RAM, we've got 3D Touch. What of those things, just in your experience, do you think wows you the most when you first get a hold of it? And well, the 3D Touch the, is cool. Hmm. Um, the I think this, the iPhone 6 was fast enough. I think the 6 Plus wasn't fast enough. I, I used the 6 Plus for a long time, and it never, never felt slow to me. Um, phones can always, you know, devices, computers of all kinds can always get faster and faster. And as, as they get faster, you find new uses for them. But the 6 Plus, because it had such a high resolution, had twice as many pixels, I think, uh, it felt like there was a delay on occasion. And I got a couple models, and I think one of them may have had a hardware problem, and I sent it back. But it just felt in general like it was um, almost an Android phone where when you're opening stuff up, there was a slight hesitation. You're opening up the camera, and you're, you're kind of frustratedly waiting for it to start so you can take a picture. So I think speed will make a bigger, the biggest difference to people who want a bigger screen like the 6 Plus. Um, and this is a much bigger jump in processor than the, the previous jump from the 5S to the 6, which was kind of a refinement and more efficiency, where this is kind of a significant jump. It's almost doubling the speed of CPU and the, and the graphics are getting even faster. So that's a really welcome improvement. And kind of in concert with that, the, the CPU being so much faster, the, um, the fact that it has more available system RAM is also important. Uh, that's something that Apple's been really conservative with the amount of RAM that it puts into its devices because the more RAM you have, the more power you use because the system has to constantly keep that RAM bathed in energy. So just adding a bunch of extra RAM actually cuts into your battery. Mm -hmm. But particularly on the 6 Plus, uh, it, it felt like extra RAM will help. And one, one of the things that I keep noticing when I use the, the original 6 Plus that I have is that when I have a map loaded and I leave and go into something else and come back, it's more likely to have discarded the data that I have. You have to reload the map. Yeah, or with like with, for example, Instagram and your you're in the middle of posting something and you leave to go to another app, you load the map, you come back to Instagram and it has discarded your photo because it, it, the system ran short on RAM and it, it dumped it all out. So um, those are the kind of things that uh, having that extra RAM that's in the new 6 Plus, uh, uh, the 6S Plus and the 6S, I think that will make a noticeable difference for a lot of people, but especially people who, have, who want the bigger phone. I am a big fan of Apple Pay, and I'm a big fan of Touch ID. And 
one of the things in the announcement was that the Touch ID processor is twice as fast. So on my iOS 8 iPhone 6, when I use Touch ID, I can definitely press the home button and get the screen to wake up before it's unlocked. What's your experience like on the new phone? I never felt like Touch ID was slow. There's a couple times where you do it and it doesn't register, and, and that can happen for a number of reasons. For example, if your hand is wet, you're, there's certain... The, the biggest thing I did yeah. to overcome that was program a thumbprint with my hand a little bit moist. Oh, that's a good idea. It totally worked. Just add well, another fingerprint. I'll try that. But in general, I think it, you know if you don't have a situation like that going on, it it's pretty fast. Um, it, you know, that's even with the six plus that feels slow in some cases. I've never noticed it really being a problem. But you know, I, I did a video that we're posting on the. Um, doing touch ID and it is, you can see it's, it is quite a bit faster. It's almost, it's basically instantaneous where you can see like a little bit of delay. So even though it's fast, it's now even faster. And, um, that means when you're going to open something, it just opens it even more fluidly than it does now. So that's cool. Also, it seemed like, I mean, I saw it on video, uh, when you double click on the home button to open the app changer, so it can be to switch between apps. That's also visibly faster. So I don't know if it's just registering the the home button faster or if the processor involved does handles all those kind of events. But it's all faster. And it's it's noticeably faster. It's not it's you can see it on video. How quickly can you get to wallet to start a payment? Oh, to do an Apple Pay? Yeah. Um, well I haven't set up my card yet. Um, I'll have to try that out. That's it's one of the things I, I know I'm I'm very early on this I but I like the idea of Apple Pay a lot I like using it and the idea that in iOS nine you can get to wallet immediately for a transaction is a is a big deal to me and the idea that it's even faster on the the success is huge I actually haven't been using Apple Pay a lot on my phone I when I use it I usually use it on my watch right you have the watch I don't so have I, the watch I, <laughs> well that would be slower for you then. But yeah, so it's on my wrist, so it's easier to. I really like Apple Pay when you're um, when you're inebriated, and, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> it works really well for that. You know, when you when you need some gum or something, and you walk into Walgreens, you can just and you buy all the gum with, with one. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to think about how to how to arrange your money. You just wave it's, your arm, and it goes. Yeah. So. Um, you said 3D Touch. We talked about Touch ID. We talked about RAM. What else do you think you would tell someone who's anxious to hear all about what's new and what you're experiencing? Not just what they told us in the keynote, but what's it like to have in the hand? Um, so it's a little bit, if you look at, if you take out a 6 and a 6S and put them next to each other, you can see that the 6S is thicker. Not that it looks thick, but that it looks, it's almost like if you, if you inflated it a little bit, so it's just like a little bit bigger, um, that's what it looks like. It's really hard to tell if you if you just if someone hands you a six S, you can't see that it's different. But if you put them next to each other, you see a slight bit of difference. Other than that, it, it's really hard to distinguish them. If somebody handed you one, it'd be very difficult to tell which one it was, unless it's the rose gold color, obviously different. Um, so it it doesn't really feel a lot different in the hand when you pick both of them up, and even though I I know that it's heavier. It doesn't feel significantly heavier. 
And I'm sure if you put it in a case, it would be very difficult to notice any difference. And the cases for, for both of them kind of work back and forth. There's not a, a significant enough difference to have them not fit correctly, unless maybe it's a really hard case or something like that. So physically, they're very similar. So um, the, main, the main differences are the much nicer camera, um, the much more powerful, powerful smarts inside. Another thing that, you know, even though they don't look any different, they use a different, um, they use the same aluminum that's in Apple Watch, the 7000 series aluminum. So it's stronger. And also the, the, um, the cover glass is stronger. So I don't know how much difference that I would have in terms of like breakability or anything like that. But um, they were emphasizing that they put a lot of technology into the case, even though it looks exactly the same. It uses more advanced materials. And did they say that the cover glass was now stronger? It's a new type of glass that's, yes, I believe it's stronger. Is it still Gorilla Glass? Is it like a different well, version of Gorilla Glass or is it someone else's glass? They, I asked if it was the same glass that they use in the watch which is what they call Ion X. And uh, they said it's it's actually a double ionized glass. So I'm not a, a glass expert, but um, they were that's what they're describing is that the glass is more advanced than, than what's on currently on the six and I guess the six and the watch use the same kind of, the sport watch use the same kind of glass. The the higher end Apple Watch uses a sapphire glass. Okay, so let me let me say this, right? So they kept in the lineup the 5S as the f- very affordable free phone. They kept the 6 and the 6 Plus in the lineup, and now we have the 6S and 6S Plus. What advice do you have for someone considering buying the phone and they're sort of torn between the the last year's line and this year's line? Uh, if you're buying a six and you're conservative about, you know, if you're, if they, you're, they look exactly the same other than the rose gold color, right? If I go into the store and I don't know better, what advice would you have for me? Well, definitely, if you want the bigger size one, I would, I would definitely go for the six S plus because it, it's faster. And we're going to be doing some benchmarks and talking about how much faster it is, but it's, it's, it's obviously usably faster. The 6, um, there's features that you don't have in the, the original 6 that are on the 6S. And among those are much nicer camera that, that takes more detailed shots. It has a front-facing flash, which is somewhat useful. I mean, it, you know, flash is not terribly flattering usually. Uh, but if you're in a dark environment and you're trying to take a selfie, having a flash really makes a difference. Um, you know, if you're taking party pics, it's, it's a useful feature. Uh, the other thing is live photos, which... You know, essentially, Apple's marketing it as a thing, but it's really it takes a photo, it takes a full, high quality, uh, a full quality photo, and at the same time, it's recording video. So it's recording kind of a basic video that lasts for three seconds. It gives you context, and um, this is kind of a, a thing that I sort of wished for with with burst captures because a lot of times you take a burst capture, and as you're panning through it, you think, "Wow, this would be kind of a cool little video to have." And I'm sure there's probably an app that lets you take a series of burst captures and turn it into a GIF. But what's cool about live photos is you don't have to think about taking them. You don't have to plan taking them. You just leave the feature on, and it automatically takes this sort of contextual video at the same time you're taking a photo. And how that's implemented is really smart, too, because 
as you pan through, as you you know flip through your photos, you see just a little hint of animation as you go from one to the next. And when you do the um, 3D touch on a photo, on a live photo, your photo um, kind of does this blur transfer, and you, and you go into the video part, and you see the context of the video, the the context of the uh, shot that you took. So if you took, you know, you have a still image of a child, and you look at the live video or the the live of the live photo. It shows them kind of sitting there squirming, taking the picture and, you know, smiling and whatever. And you, and you hear ambient sound as well. And there's much more emotional impact than, than I can describe in saying that. But when you look at your photos and you, you know, you're on a camping trip and you took this picture and you look at the live photo and it shows the trees swaying and, you know, the ripples on the lake and things like that, it has a, um, a contextualizing kind of emotional impact that, that's on top of the photo that's done really well. And I really like that. And it's kind of really what I was wishing for. So I'm glad they did it. Cool. Well, I know you're busy working on videos to show us the very latest about this. Do you have a parting thought for our listeners? Uh, well, stick around. We're going to be publishing a lot more details of what we find with the new phones. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to our regular show. I want to jump right into the news. Watch OS 2 is out. It's been released. And, Neil, you've been running WatchOS 2. Tell me about it. Well, WatchOS 2 is not really a huge update, despite the fact that it's a 2.0, until you start getting the third-party apps. That's when it really starts to uh, start to take advantage of what's in there. It's really a lot of under-the-hood changes, and the biggest being that the third-party apps, if they're written for WatchOS 2, now load natively on the watch. So before, you would tap on an app, and it would take forever to load. Uh, now you tap on an app and it loads instantly, and the same goes for the glances and other stuff. So it's a good improvement, um, but don't upgrade and expect to be really wowed right off the bat. It's going to take a few months for these apps to start getting updated and start hitting the App Store. But we, we published an article, so, so that's a good question, is you know, you, you, when you're out there with your phone and you're watching the world, trying to figure out what are the best watchOS 2 apps to put on your watch now that you've got this, so we ran an article talking about what the best new watchOS 2 compatible apps are. Can you tell me about what some of the ones are and what the highlights are? Yeah, so um, I went through and just kind of looked at what the options were out there and gave just kind of a rundown of uh, the variety of apps that are available. Uh, and in terms of uh, things that could showcase what your watch can do or what it's capable of. Because what always excites me about these new emerging platforms is... Uh, things that you couldn't necessarily do before, how it makes your life easier. So um, one of the ones that uh, I highlight in there is Dark Sky. Uh, it's a pretty popular app. It's a weather app, um, and it takes advantage of a lot of the features of watchOS 2. So runs natively. Um, you can do custom uh, complications on there. Uh, so it'll say something like it's going to rain within the next hour or something like that, customize alerts, and you can kind of set everything that you want on there. And it also uses the time travel feature in watchOS 2. So time travel when you're on your watch face, you can rotate the digital crown to look into the future, and what it'll do is update your schedules and other stuff. Well, Dark Sky works that way, and it lets you know what the weather is going to be in an hour, two hours, three hours as you rotate through. So it's a really nice uh, feature in that one. Now, how long have you been using Dark Sky? Um, I don't personally use Dark Sky, but I know it's a popular one. So uh, I've been using it since it ever debuted. Uh-huh. I know. I know people love it, first. and that was why I included it in the it. roundup. Uh, Dark Sky, 
the same people that made forecast.io, which is actually a web app that looks beautiful on the phone as well. It's really, really convenient. When the phone gives me a notification and plays the sound that drizzles about to start or a rainstorm's coming, it's spot on accurate. As soon as I get that notification, about five minutes later, it begins to rain. I feel like I'd be more interested in Dark Sky if I left the apartment. <laughs> That's really sad. That's really sad. You can't help the fact that you are a hermit and a recluse. Oh, boy. Mikey, do you use Dark Sky? I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, so you I have also, it on your watch? Yeah. I have that. Does it never rain where you are, Mikey? Sometimes. <laughs> um, it, it, on your island headquarters on your your base on the island does it ever rain at all yeah we've actually been having a kind of stormy weather because of el nino it's been uh pushing a lot of hot air towards us and i think we had like um we just had like a couple hurricane warnings but didn't didn't hit turn into tropical storms so but i noticed think of your your island paradise as having no precipitation at all so that's kind of interesting well, I mean, it has to be, it's green for a reason. Uh, we got we got the showers. Depends where you are. If you live in, uh, isn't it Hilo? That gets the most rainfall of anywhere in the continent, I believe. Yeah, that it's really sad there. Yeah, I, I stayed there, um, and Hilo is just constant rainfall uh, because it's, of the uh, the way the Big Island is shaped. That draws all the clouds there. So it's uh, it's Hawaii's Seattle. <laughs> it's just constantly <laughs> raining there. So if you live in Hilo, you definitely want to get Dark Sky, I think. But you like the Apple Watch app? Yeah, yeah. I mean, before it was not, um, I don't know, it, it took longer to load than I could just, you know, look out the window yeah. and maybe judge for myself when it's going to rain. But now it, it's just good. I mean, we I can agree that third-party watch apps were useless in Watch OS 1, right? Yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, they just took forever to load. So for the listeners that don't know, if you had watchOS 1 and you loaded a third-party app, virtually none of the processing was done by the watch to save battery life. The app had to load from your phone, so your watch had to wirelessly tell your phone, hey, load Dark Sky. And then it would go, okay, and then your phone would start loading it and then sending the data for it over to your watch. And it just, it was just a spinning, spinning, spinning on the screen. And so it was just like, why would I, I just take my phone out of my pocket at that point. Um, You just answered one of our listener questions, right? On Twitter, at Gagamus Prime asked, has WatchOS 2 fixed the Apple Watch's initial sluggish that many reviewers referred to? Yeah, that's what a lot of the reviews referred to were these third-party apps that just really did not run well. And so now they're not only running natively, but they're more tightly integrated into the operating system. So one of the other apps I had in my roundup, uh, iTranslate, is a great example of that. So iTranslate has a watch face complication. So you can set it so that if you travel internationally a lot, for example, you can set it so that uh, it's right there on the watch face. All you need to do is tap on the complication, and then it instantly loads the iTranslate app. Not only does it do that, but it knows your location, so it will automatically translate figure out what the local language is and set it up so it'll automatically translate that. And then you can have the complication display certain common phrases. So, for example, if you're in Germany and you don't know how to say good morning in German, uh, it will tell you when you wake up how to say it. So before you go out and start greeting people, you'll have it there on your watch face ready to go. Um, and how do you even, say it, Neil? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I speak one <laughs> language. so uh, and then, And I don't speak it that well, uh, by the way. Uh, and then you can also use, uh, much like with Dark Sky, the time travel feature. So if you want to scroll ahead, 
uh, you know, it's the afternoon, you're going to go to dinner later and you're going to meet some people and you want to figure out how to say good evening or uh, thank you or something, you can scroll ahead and it'll, it'll give you that right on the watch face. So pretty neat um, implementation, I think, uh, taking advantage of some of the features in watchOS 2. The one thing that I'm waiting for um, and the only fitness app I have on the list is Runtastic Pro. Now, I'm a RunKeeper user. Well, I, I was a RunKeeper user. I stopped using it because they didn't have any native apps for the watch, and I've been running with just my watch. So I, don't, I haven't tried this one out either, but it's relatively well-reviewed. And um, it was the first and only, I think, still uh, fitness-focused of the major running apps, uh, you know, uh, RunKeeper, Runtastic. So what are some of the others? Uh, my Fitness, Map My Run, Map My Fitness. Yeah, none of those have been updated for WatchOS 2 yet. So the reason I included Runtastic in this is because it's the first one out of the gate. Um, and they have updated it to use the uh, heart rate monitor, which previously in watchOS 1, the developers couldn't access. So that's a big change uh, for that app, and hopefully the start of a lot of fitness apps on there that are going to integrate more tightly with the capabilities of the device. So to be really clear, if the app has been updated for watchOS 2, then it doesn't have that initial sluggishness. If the app has not been updated, it's still offloaded from the iPhone, it is still... Yes, and watchOS two watchOS two can wa slow. run watchOS one apps, but watchOS one apps. Or I have hold on. Let me make sure I'm getting this right. WatchOS two, if you have it installed, will run watchOS one apps. But if you install a watchOS two app and you haven't updated your watch to watchOS two, it will not run watchOS two apps. They, they they just will not be on your watch anymore. Are you thoroughly confused yet? So if I take the subway from here to Broadway, and then my watchOS doesn't have my watchOS 1 app. Got it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's thoroughly confusing. Yes, it is. But uh, some of the other things that are available in watchOS 2, the developers can now tap into the microphone, um, which is great. And that's another thing that I translate uses um, if you're using that. Um, there was a pretty interesting one on here that I included um, an accessibility app for uh, people who may have uh, issues communicating. Uh, it's called Proloquo to Go, and uh, it caught my eye a few years ago. I was familiar with this app because I saw an app on there that was $250, and it had like a four and a half out of five star rating. <laughs> and in my own experiences with the App Store, you charge anybody a dollar and they're mad at you. So the fact that there would be a $250 app that was well rated was surprising to me. Can I can I talk about Proloquo to Go for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. So Proloquo to Go is something called uh, it's it's a kind of app or picture exchange communication system app and the way that this works traditionally in a PEX system is I have a card with an icon that's a, a pictograph it's not a photograph it has to be a pictograph so it's generalizable mm -hmm. and not specific and the label of what that picture is and a person who has difficulty with either speech delay or is totally nonverbal can compose a short sentence of these cards combining them and then hand you the composed sentence and you can read what they wanted and then communicate. Right. And what Proloquo did and what some of the other assistive uh, applications have done has been to convert this system into something that lives on the iPad. Now, they're by no means the first technology product to do this. Um, you know, there used to be a Dynavox system and they're still around. They charged $8,000 <laughs> for a Windows XP tablet back Jeez. when a tablet computer was a big big giant laptop with but what's the batteries, price you would put right? on having a voice right 
that was what it came down to. Right. Eight thousand dollars was the price they put on having a voice. Yeah, and they didn't expect parents to pay for this. They expected uh, parents who would go out and get grants to pay for it, or they expected that school systems would pay for it and provide it to the students under the idea that this was the the. Um, and I'm going to blank on the term, but it was the the most accommodating environment for the student. Mm-hmm. And so they were making a, a ton of money building these systems, or at least they were charging a ton of money. Let's not say that they were making a ton of money, but they were certainly charging a ton of money for these systems. And when the iPad came out, it changed the landscape for this. They were no longer the only game in town. They were no longer the the single source and you had to have this giant giant windows machine you could now have the very thin ipad or even versions for the phone or ipod touch and what a lot of people did was use these kind of applications on an ipod touch because you can compose the sentence completely on these and um, that made a ton of difference for a lot of people it made a huge impact for parents of of nonverbal children and Proloquo to Go is one of the premier apps in this space. So the idea that they put this on the watch means that if you've got a, a phone, so you've equipped a child with a phone and equipped a child with a watch, or, or even not a child, a teenager or a young adult, and they're able to use the watch to communicate is kind of huge. So did you get Proloquo to Go and no, try it out? No, I haven't used it, uh, but I looked into it and I was reading uh, about it, and it's just a really great uh, app. I mean, just what they've been able to do and when you read through their reviews and how much it helps people, it's just really cool to see. For me, again, I'm, I'm very interested in how technology does things that we couldn't do before, didn't imagine or whatever. And in, a, in an application like this, um, it's just really, really exciting to see the potential that comes from it. And so like one of the limitations currently that they, they mentioned in the release notes is that the current watchOS 2, while it opened up a lot of new capabilities that allow this app to be a reality, it still does not have text-to-speech capabilities. So they, they got around this by it, it composes a sentence for somebody who's trying to communicate, and it displays the sentence upside down so the person in front of them can just look at their watch and then see what they're trying to say. So it doesn't speak out loud like the iPhone or iPad app does, but it does allow them to communicate in a way that might be more convenient or uh, for somebody. So hopefully, you know, with watchOS 3 or whatever, you would see some text-to-speech capabilities open up for apps like this and others uh, that can uh, give that ability to people. But I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. And, you know, what a lot of these apps did early on was instead of, of do text-to-speech computationally, when you create a card with the image and the word, they would have the parent record with the parent's voice the, what the label was on the card mm-hmm. and do that instead and just play the file. And there are a number of good apps like this. You know, there was uh, my favorite that I used with my daughter was Grace app, which is named that way because that's the name of the daughter of the woman who, who paid to have the app written. And these, these apps really open up a, a world for people who are otherwise unable to communicate without the, the assistance of the old method, which was uh, a binder and a Velcro strip and these cards with Velcro on them and composing sentences that way. And, you know, that's that's how my one of my daughters was first able to ever communicate with me was using this picture exchange system. It's it's, it's really cool. It's and huge. Apple has always been uh, very uh, conscious of 
develop of uh, of users with Excel accessibility issues, and we have a lot of readers as well. Um, and a lot of times when there's a new iOS update out, something breaks, and they will email me and let me know. And sure enough, uh, when we write about it, uh, it always ends up getting fixed in like the next iOS release. They're very, very conscious of making their products as easily accessible as they can for for people. And uh, then they, you know, a lot of people always email afterwards and say, "Hey, it's been fixed. Thank you." So it's great, and it's great that the company does that and and makes these platforms available to developers to create tools like this. I think it's very exciting. I agree, and it's it's just so rewarding to see this spread. You know, there are a number of programs out there for people who uh, who have these problems and need help like this. There there are people who collect old iPhones and old iPod touches and load these apps on there and then donate them so that it's possible for people who need this help, need this technology to get it. And it's it's amazing. It really is. Um, more more common, more applicable to everyone with a watch. Is it possible? To use nightstand mode permanently on the phone when it's charged on the watch when it's charging. I don't believe so. I think you have to tap the screen is how it works, Mikey. Am, am I right there? Yeah. It, it's not always on. I, I assume that Apple doesn't want to drain the screen and have it die prematurely or something. It yeah, is possible to age a backlight prematurely like that. So it, that may be the. Yeah, I don't know what the the. The uptime on an OLED is right. I mean, how long? How long would they last? I mean, if the screen is on for, uh, you know, twelve hours a day or something in nightstand mode, eight hours a day, that seems like a lot. Well, and also sleeping with lights in the room is bad for your sleep. Anyway. It's yeah. <laughs> I always hate it when I get a new gadget and they have like some sort of bright light on it, and I have to get like some electrical tape to cover them all up because they like illuminate the room, and it's like, who designed this? It's every guy who says, oh, we need to have a light to tell people what it's doing. And so you get a green light or a blue light. <sighs> and, you know, I, I, God, I've got all this stuff in my bedroom. And the TV, thank God, had a mode where you could force it in menus to not have the light on. Yeah. But when it's powered off, because it, you're off, why are you showing me a light? But the, um, the alarm clock, yeah, everything's got a damn LED on it. Mikey, you have a PS4, right? Yep. What, what do you think of the pulsing light on it? Uh, I sh- well, it's in the living room, so I don't care. But right. uh, I used to shut it down completely mm-hmm. to get rid. I mean, of it's ridiculous, light. though, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Mike, do you have a Why a- Things Aura? Right? Do you have the Aura? Uh, no, I don't. No. What sleep product do you have? Um, Sense. You have the Sense. Does it have lights? It does have lights, but. It doesn't stay on. You have to wave your hand over it to a. Uh, it's temporary. It's a temporary thing. Okay. I I have a, a Resmed S Plus sleep monitor, and it's got a really bright green LED and those jerks. And I use that term very very uh, honestly and very um, understatedly. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, it, it's not family friendly, Neil. <laughs> Uh, so the green LED is on when I don't have it, the app set to tell it I'm going to sleep. I tap sleep. It gives me a pre-sleep interview. And I answer, you know, did I have alcohol? Did I have coffee? Whatever. Did I exercise? And when I'm answering the pre-sleep interview, they turn the light out. I tap go to sleep at the end of the pre-sleep interview, and they turn the LED on. I- and then, and then it gets better to mock me, to make it worse they pulse the LED 
for 30 seconds in this sinusoidal heartbeat pattern. Yep, that's the same thing the PS4 does, the heartbeat. It's supposed to be low like a breathing thing. Low and bright, low and bright, low oh. and I told you I was going to sleep. Why the heck are you still on? I'm sorry, the whole concept of a pre-sleep interview sounds like a nightmare in and of itself. Well, and it, it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> I've told you that I'm going to sleep. Go to sleep, yeah. right? They do this because they are not coming from a consumer electronics space. They're coming from, they are sleep doctors who supply things to sleep centers for medical research. And so they want you to be able to say, you know, I I had cups of coffee after five o'clock. Who would want to use this product? Does anybody like going to the doctor? Well, that's, no, there's a brilliant question. Who wants to measure their sleep in the first place? Well, yeah, that's true too. There were a lot of people that were upset when the Apple Watch was announced. They wished that it had sleep tracking because it doesn't because you have to charge it overnight. But right, but but Mikey has a sleep product. Why did you get it, Mikey? Um, I think I got it just to be more cognizant of how little sleep I was getting. And did it change <laughs> anything? Yeah, it it really seeing it, it quantified for, for me how little sleep I was getting and how poorly I was sleeping made me <laughs> kind of change my. Uh, my habits a little bit. I, I've been going to sleep a little, a little earlier, and I guess I mean for me it worked. I just That's need good. that extra, that extra push to say that you're killing yourself. They, I guess they do say that anything that you measure, you will improve on just by virtue of having measured it. Right. I agree. And well, I my sleep cycles and my sleep records going back for the past three years disagree, but you know that's me. <laughs> You're stubborn. I set out knowing that I had bad sleep and that, that improving it was not going to be the thing. So well, would, are you the one of the on people track. that would want a sleep monitor on your watch, Mikey? No, because I charge it at night. That's what I'm saying, if it lasted long enough. Um, I guess, I mean, I, use, I used to use, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, not Fitbit. Uh, You're using Misfit Shine. No, the, n- no, no, no. Because uh, they have good sleep tracking. Yeah, you're using was, Jawbone? Was, it was pretty good. The, the Jawbone was pretty good as well. You, so you've tried all these for sleep tracking, huh? Yeah. Neil, Mikey and I have a confession to make. We're yeah. both doing all this sleep trapping crap. <laughs> I don't understand it. I've never... Whatever. Yeah. So a lot of these wristbands throw it in because they can. Right. Um, they don't do it very well. Actigraphy is the name of the science that says if you're moving, you must not be sleeping well. Yeah. And... The uh, the the product that Mikey has and the uh, the S Plus that I've got both do it more accurately, mm-hmm. but the wristbands, some of the wristbands are better than others, and uh, I, I don't know what it is that people put it in there. It's kind of like one of those features to check unless you're buying the dedicated product like we have. I wouldn't expect to see a, a built-in Apple sleep tracker on the watch anytime soon just because of... The fact that obviously the battery life is nowhere near at a level where they would need it to be to work overnight or work multiple days. But not only that, the recharge capabilities. That was actually one of the most interesting things about uh, the new Pebble that was announced this week. Uh, They made it really thin by only having um, uh, a small battery in there. But one of the things they bragged about is if you charge it for like 15 minutes or whatever, it gets like uh, uh, a day of battery life out of it. So... Uh, there, there must be some new quick charge capability for these low power devices that's going on because it's the same thing with the uh, Apple Pencil that's coming out with the iPad Pro. Uh, you can so, plug it into the Lightning port, and in 15 minutes, it gives you like how long uptime? Like uh, a couple hours or something, right? Or no, 15 there is seconds. A fast charge. 
there is a fast charge technology that has come out. And I don't know if it's in either of those two products, yeah. but it does behave kind of that way. Uh, Qualcomm has this. Qualcomm showed this at CES last year, and it is a fast charge, and it, it will charge, like you're talking about, that rapidly. And they supply it for a number of different voltage levels. It's it's interesting. I was looking to see, and I can't remember whether or not it's integrated into USB-C, but I think that it, it certainly is part of that spec. Um, the the idea is that you can supply, you know, uh, the the five volts, the a nine volt, and a twelve volt, and you can supply at ridiculous amperages from from the normal one or two amps all the way up to some twenty amps, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm, I'm fifteen seconds. Don't hold me to those numbers. The... I could be entirely wrong, but you can get uh, a day's charge out of fifteen minutes. That's crazy. Fifteen seconds on the pencil gets you thirty minutes of battery life. I mean, that still blows my mind. I know they announced that like two weeks ago, but still. How the heck do you do that? It's pretty cool. But I, I think that maybe once they could get that kind of technology into an Apple Watch and have it get juiced very quickly like that, like you'd charge it in the morning when you shower or something and get a couple days' worth out of it, I think that then you might be able to see some sleep tracking or some overnight functionality for that crowd of people. I still want that functionality in the phone and the tablet. I want that in the iPad. In the tablet? I want that quick charge in the tablet. Oh, the quick charge. <laughs> I thought you were saying you want your tablet to track your sleep. No. <laughs> no, I've got sleep products that require you putting things on the mattress. Yeah, you put it in the are, ma- sleep on your they iPad. They are all terrible. <laughs> I, I have one that's a, uh, uh, what is this thing called? It's called, I think it's called a sleep ace. Uh-huh. And it is a long, thin strip that you put on the mattress. You put it under your, your actually, you're supposed to put it under the mattress between the box spring. Mm-hmm. I feel that thing through the mattress. It is the worst night's sleep ever. No, you're supposed to put it. You're supposed to put it under your sheets above the mattress. Is what you're supposed what to. What is do. this? The princess and the pea? Come on. It. It's no. You. It's a nightmare. I will show you this thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can feel things through the sheets on the top of the mattress, right? Uh, you're not yeah, feeling it through the box spring. It's. It's. Yeah. It's. Right. So try sleeping on like twenty sheets of paper. Yeah, no you feel a lump you. in your back. That's exactly what they made. It's uh, nuts. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Before we put everybody to sleep. Before we put it, well, we're going to put everyone to sleep because it's time for an ad read. (laughs) Do you need a website? Do you, Neil? Uh, Yes. Do you really? No. No. But, thankfully... You are not the market for this necessarily, because if you do need a website, you can do it yourself with Wix.com. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, and you're pretty much too busy to create your own website. It has to be easy, and that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy for you to create your stunning website. No matter what business you're in, they have something for you, and it's used by 60 million people throughout the world. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites. You do it with a drag-and-drop builder. There are hundreds of designer-made templates to choose from. No coding is required. It's easy. It's free. Go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit cards required. You can get your website live today, and the results will be stunning. Thanks to Wix.com for sponsoring our podcast today. With Wix.com, you don't need to be a programmer or a designer to create something beautiful. Go to wix.com and easily create your own stunning website for free today. 
iOS 9 came out. Now, I put it on my phone. We talked about last week. The news this week is that it was the most quickly adopted software release ever. So that tells me that pretty much every one of you out there listening has probably put iOS 9 on your phones. I would love for you to tweet at us and tell us how it's working out for you. Tell us the good, tell us the bad, tell us what you like, what you don't like. I want to hear about it. Neil, tell me about all of this. There have been a lot of, of updates with with iOS 9. What's been going on with it? Uh, they quickly put out iOS 9.0.1 this week, um, addressing some small bugs related to the clock and some other things on there, um, timers and that sort of stuff, uh, and a setup issue, setup assistant issue. Um, and then they've also issued a couple of betas already of 9.1, so they're working very quickly to address some of the jankiness of iOS 9. Um, I've had a fair amount of problems with iOS 9, particularly in the Messages app, but just for whatever reason, because they didn't really change anything in the Messages app. But it just isn't really working well for me. Um, Mikey, are you seeing the same? or I am not. You haven't had any issues? Nope. Well. Well, and that's why it's the most quickly adopted OS. <laughs> I, the the keyboard doesn't at? work properly for me. So, what, like, what doesn't? The keyboard. So if I oh, load up keyboard. messages and uh, tap on a conversation and then very quickly go to start typing, uh, the keyboard will like lag out and not respond. Or if I open a conversation and hit the photo share button um, and try to select a photo, either the scrolling or selection will freeze or it won't insert the photo into the uh, text field. So I can either wait uh, you know, a few seconds and then it will kind of unfreeze and then I can do it again or I can force close the app and go in and try again. But what makes it consistent for me is if I open a conversation and then quickly try to do something, it breaks it. I updated to uh, 9.1 public beta 2 today and it has addressed that issue for me. But I've talked to other people that had that same problem with 9.0 and 9.0.1. So uh, it seems like it's relatively common, but I guess not everybody's got it if you haven't seen it. Do you use um, the uh, other or third-party keyboards and or Apple's built-in uh, foreign keyboards or international keyboards? No. I only use the U.S. keyboard with QuickType enabled, and I have the Emoji keyboard, and that's it. Hmm. Mike, Mike, you have to remember, Neil only speaks one language, and it isn't English. <laughs> it's true. And Emoji. Yeah. Although, yeah, I, I had that happen to me when uh, in iOS 7, I think it was. Yeah, iOS 7, I when I had um, the Japanese keyboard enabled, it would lag out, too. I'm not even going to discuss my, my issues. You've had more problems than anybody, yeah. It's been crazy for you. Yeah, it has. Um, and I saw what you guys were seeing, except that mine would never come back. It was unrecoverable. I have to reboot. But I'm convinced that I'm the outlier because everyone else is enjoying it, and I'm just going to go ahead and sit in the corner and cry about my phone. Yeah, people have been pretty positive about it. I, I was talking to a friend of mine today who said he got a lot more speed out of his phone by turning off serious suggestions. He said his phone was much faster after doing that. So I don't know. Th there's clearly some bugs to be worked out. Um, one of our... Uh, readers tweeted at us this week uh lycestra l-y-c-e-s lycestra lycestra l-y-c-e-s-t-r-a 
wanted to know uh, why with iOS 9 there was an influx of 9-only app updates, meaning that apps on the App Store were only compatible with iOS 9. Uh, and they want to know why it changed from the old wisdom from developers of supporting more, like older uh, OS releases. And obviously you'd have to ask developers this. I, I can't speak for all of them, but um, I can say that iOS 9 runs on every device that ran iOS 8. So the presumption on the part of developers is likely that everyone's going to upgrade to iOS 9 because they're not leaving any hardware behind. Uh, so it's not like last year when iOS 8 didn't run on the iPhone 4. Uh, so if you have iOS 8 on your device, you can run iOS 9. And that would be my guess as to why. For some definitions of can, and I'm going to go ahead and speak for all developers. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So the thing is, supporting multiple operating system releases is kind of a nightmare. Right. You not only have to account for the twists and turns and bugs and whatever else the new release throws you, and you have to get on the new release because all of your reviews will go to one star saying, worked beautifully under iOS 8, doesn't support 9, I've upgraded to 9, get on it. And it's not like they're giving you a bad review because your product is bad. They're giving you a bad review because you as a developer are a bad human being for not supporting the newest thing the day they upgrade. And trying to do that and support all of the things that you had to support in iOS 8 and try and keep your code base the same even as you're taking advantage of new things in iOS 9 is a recipe for disaster. It's going to be annoying to manage your code. It's going to be annoying trying to manage both sets of bugs. It's going to be annoying trying to keep your builds clean for both things. It, it Just forget it. Forget it. Forget you got to go it. to the new thing. Tough. But you're That's still it. running iOS 8, right? I am. <laughs> forget it. And I'm getting app updates that, that are, for now, saying updating to support 9 for things. But I expect very soon that I'm going to have people making updates that simply won't be available to me. And that's happened before. I've had you issues know, with, with older uh, releases. I've had updates with issues since iOS 9 launched where it keeps telling me that I haven't updated apps, that the, app, the update came out weeks ago, and it'll say install this, and then I'll hit install again, and then it doesn't. So something wonky is going on. I don't know if that's on the OS or if that's on the App Store or the install. I've had installs that have been freezing, and they won't finish until I restart the phone. Um, but I've had some of that with my apps on 8 as well. Yeah, so I don't know that thing. that's... Yeah. I, I also had an issue uh, after updating to the uh, final build of WatchOS 2, uh, the first couple days just sitting and working, not really doing anything with the watch, not playing with it or listening to music, just getting the occasional notification. Uh, by like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it was giving me a, a warning that the battery was down to 10%. I Googled and um, people said that they fixed it just by unpairing and repairing their Apple Watch to their phone, which is a kind of a long and annoying process because when sounds you like unpair, a network bug yeah when you unpair you have to back up the watch so you can restore it so i'll look right now i haven't charged my watch today and i've had it on since probably 7 7 30 this morning um 62 is where i'm at and it's currently you know five in the afternoon so that that seems about right reasonable yeah i don't know what to say beyond reasonable um i i i blame the app store the you know with the watch and the issue you were seeing there, that sounds like a network bug where it was trying to seek network and raising powered antennas. You know, that's the kind of thing that cell phones do. And the reason that cell phones run out of battery faster when they're in areas of weak signals because they know they're in areas of weak signal. And instead of just accepting it, they crank up the antenna power to try and get that signal. Yeah, I hate that. 
Well, that's what airplane mode is for. They're smarter than the phone. But uh, with the watch, that's that. It just feels like that would be what it was trying to do. Well, we've talked about watches. We've talked about phones. We've talked about pencils and iPads and apps. And I want to talk about something that I enjoy, which is driving. And I want to talk about it in the context of Apple Car. Apple Car is rumored to launch in 2019. But the big news is it won't be self-driving. Um, I don't want a self-driving car, so I don't really care. But, I mean, to pe- for people who <clears throat> view Apple and Apple Car as something that's going to be mind-blowing, I guess self-driving is a, uh, I guess one of the most manageable, mind-blowing features to come in the next five years, I think, since everyone else is doing it. Well, right now, there is no self-driving car on the road that you can buy. You cannot go and purchase one from the dealer. But the way that people's window on this perception has moved has been, at first, it was something strange and weird. Now, it's just seen as, that's a feature my car ought to have the same way that I have heating and air conditioning. Those aren't options. It should just be equipped. And so that's the expectation, even though you can't buy one from Lexus, for example, you can't buy one from Mercedes, it just ought to be there. Why isn't it there? Why We're talking about 2019, why can't I have it? My thought is, I don't care. I would prefer that the car that I get be the very best implementation of a car. And self-driving doesn't have to fall under that for me right now because I'm still driving a manual. Neil, you have a car. You don't drive anymore, but what, are, what, what's, what car do you do? I'm, I'm planning on selling my car soon, actually, but uh, I drive an automatic. I have a Mustang, and, I mean, I, I, I love it. It's a cool car. It's fun to drive. Um, I, I mean, the self-driving thing doesn't seem like anything that's going to happen anytime super soon, I can't imagine. Um and I, I think that self-driving cars are not only an inevitability. I think that somewhere in the distant, distant future, human-driven cars will be illegal just because self-driving cars will be so much safer and statistics will prove. But I also predict that at some point in the nearer term, you know, uh, once they first get on the road, there's going to be some sort of horrible accident uh, with self-driving cars just because it's inevitability, right? It's technology. And it's going to set everything back because something bad happens. And then we're going to kind of take a step back and go, maybe we should kind of slow down on this self-driving car thing. Um, and, you know, it, it'll take time. It's going to take a lot of time. But, it, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that Apple's first dr- car isn't going to be self-driving. I mean, that always seemed way too ambitious to me. Um, of course, they're looking into self-driving cars. They'd be stupid not to because, again, it's an inevitability. But... I mean, for people to think that by 2020, we're going to have a car that drove itself everywhere and you're going to be able to buy it. um, And that was going to be like a commonplace thing, I think was way too ambitious, especially, I mean, we're looking at the car industry here. It it takes a long time to facilitate change there. It took them forever to figure out that the car was a rolling entertainment center and they ought to put computerized entertainment centers in the dashboard. Well, and, 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 you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, the smartphones before Apple came along. Well, yeah, smartphones before Apple came along, but there's an entire infrastructure that goes well beyond just wireless signals that cars are dependent on with other drivers on the road, types of vehicles, traffic, signs, speed limits, local laws, uh, all kinds of things that make this extremely 
extremely complicated, extremely complicated, and all kinds of factors that Apple or any other company would need to overcome. It's no surprise that Apple or anybody else would be working on this because there's certainly a desire and even a need for this type of technology. But the likelihood of self-driving cars uh, being uh, uh, all over the road in the next five years, no, that's not happening. Okay. I want to ask some other questions. So, so Mikey. When you were 15 or 16, was it a big deal getting your driver's license? Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was a thing you looked forward to and you were excited about and it was cool, yeah? Yeah. I think it still is, right? Um, well, I think it's changing. That's what I'm getting at. Neil, when you were 15 or 16, mm-hmm. getting your license, getting your learner's permit, going for that, big deal, yes or no? Yeah, very big deal. Right. What I'm guessing, and, and people can shout me down and tell me I'm wrong, is is that anymore it's becoming less of a big deal and and it probably still is in places that don't have public infrastructure and public transportation but the idea that i'm i'm getting at is there's this this sort of concept that millennials the millennials would rather spend time going places looking at their phones than actually doing the driving the driving <laughs> is irrelevant now i i think that might be a little aggressive i think they still <laughs> i think they yeah. still uh value their freedom than the, the freedom that the car represents over yeah. over their little gizmos. But one day, I, I assume that maybe, you know... Uh, yeah, it also depends on what kind of culture they grew up in. Like, if they grew up with, like, the BART or something, then maybe they wouldn't be too concerned about um, getting a car because they've already... They already have a sense of, of uh, individual freedom with public transportation but still i think i think for americans at least it the car still represents that yeah that kind of <clears throat> sentiment well and a self-driving car let's be real addresses one of the biggest problems that we have in this country which is absolutely abysmal public transportation i, mean, I thought you were going to say i thought you were going to say drivers <laughs> i was oh I, I, I was waiting for the statistic on the number of car deaths a year. No, I mean, obviously, car deaths are not good. But let's be real. Everybody, we, we have more cars than we have people in this country, okay? It's crazy. And they just clog up the roads. It's not efficient. It's not uh, environmentally friendly. Uh, it costs us so much money to build roads, to pave roads, to do all of this stuff that... Uh, our entire infrastructure is built around and especially like I grew up in Florida where there is no real viable public transportation. I mean, you have to own a car if you want to have a job and be able to hold that job. You know, <laughs> they have buses in town and stuff, but they don't run that well and nobody really uses them and it's it's just a mess. And you compare it to some places like New York City, which obviously has much better public transportation, but for the ba- for the vast majority of the United States, Public transportation is just awful. And so there are some people who think that things like uh, car sharing services are inevitably going to become the primary way to own cars. Or Wait, what's you- a car sharing service? So like uh, you might live in a building with people and there's a certain number of cars that the building owns and you would check one out. And okay. you would use, and so it's like a community car, essentially. Uh, you, and then there's other variations of that, like Zipcar and things like that, where you just pay to go use the car when you want to use it. 
Uh, but I think that uh, some people think that it's going to become more like a building or a neighborhood or whatever would have cars and they just have a pool of them that they would use. I don't see that happening just because it's a it's a difficult cultural thing to break, you know. Um, I think it leads to the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that everybody's still going to own their own car for the vast majority of the United States. Uh, because we'll just never solve public transportation here. It's just a, it's a nightmare and, and it's a can of worms nobody's going to open. But if we can make the cars more efficient, if we can make them safer, um, you can address the problem in a very different way. And I think that's where whoever cracks this mystery of uh, uh, of the future of cars, whether it's Apple or whether it's Google or Uber or, or Tesla or somebody else, I think that's really where... Uh, I think that's really where it's going to make an impact. Mikey, you were on MSNBC talking about the Apple car. I was for a Tell minute. What's up? It was awesome. <laughs> Tell me about that experience. Um, well, it was, it was like a phone-in interview, except a lot shorter. Um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've never done a remote telecast before, so it was a little, uh, a little nerve-wracking with the the mic. I mean the mic, the, the earpiece, and you know the whole live thing. But overall, it's a whatever interesting experience, I guess. Nothing, cool. nothing, nothing too great about it. Nothing to write home about. Go, got on, said my piece, and uh, they uh, had to cut away to the Popapalooza, so I didn't really get to uh, banter too much, hmm. which is uh, unfortunate. Yeah, that 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 Pope guy, man. Why is always, always stealing my thunder? I'm saying. Someday I want to get a picture of, of you and the Pope, and I want people to say, who's that guy standing next to Mikey? <laughs> his, his hat is so, is so funny. I'm, I'm not talking about the hat. Don't disrespect the hat. The pontiff. All right, I've got to talk about something else. I want to talk about SoftLayer. SoftLayer delivers a cloud built for power. Your business, your applications, your computational workloads are unique, so you deserve cloud resources that meet your specific needs. SoftLayer is one of the only cloud providers that provisions dedicated servers and virtual servers from a single, seamless platform, all on demand, all connected to the same open API, all connected to a global private network, allowing you to scale your workloads up and down quickly and have ample space for your storage-intensive tasks. All of our listeners have the opportunity to get $500 of cloud infrastructure by visiting softlayer.com slash podcast with a capital P. You can order bare metal servers, virtual servers, storage, networking, and security services from your choice of data center. And there are 24 data centers around the world. All of those servers and services are connected to Softlayer's unique network of networks, which separates public, private, and management traffic, ensuring that traffic to and from your cloud infrastructure travels more efficiently. Visit softlayer.com slash podcast with a capital P to get started with your $500 off servers, storage, network, and security on a cloud built for power from SoftLayer. So one of the things about iOS 9 is that it allowed you to do content blocker. Now, iOS, 9, iOS for a long time now has had what we've called a reader view, where it's been possible in Safari to tap on a, a button up in the URL bar and view an article in a format without the advertisements. And that's been really cool and convenient. But with iOS 9, it gained the ability to use what's called a content blocker. And the content blocker is like an ad blocker. 
Now, there have been three three of these, right, Neil? Uh, there was Peace, there was Crystal. Well, there were, I'm, I'm sure there were more than there were three that got all the attention, though. Okay, so so let's name those three. Oh, there, there was there was Peace, Peace, Crystal, and then what was the other one? I can't even remember right now. I have, I haven't used any of them, so. Really, you haven't used any of them. <laughs> You're surprised? Well, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you you your one of your whole things is to try out this stuff, right? No, no. You you don't try out the new stuff on. He likes to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> well, hold on. Okay, the, the the third we're thinking about here is Purify. Okay. Uh, they, have, they have these great names, too. Purify mm-hmm. and Peace. Right. Peace is no longer available, so we're not even going to talk about Peace. Mm-hmm. Peace out. But Crystal and Purify are, are the two ones. And one of the things that's controversial about this is Apple Insider, as you know from our ad read moments ago, is an ad-supported product, an ad-supported service, an ad-supported network, an ad-supported global media conspiracy. And using one of these content blockers literally is taking food out of the mouths of my children. Stop it now. But the the controversy comes in when a couple of different things happen. For some people... There are ad networks that are better than others. They, they think that instead of fighting all ads, that the focus should be on fighting the worst of the ads. And that's a valid position to discuss, right? There are the ads that are simply small, subtle, and do one thing, aren't animated, aren't bothersome. And then there are ads for other sites that block the whole top of the page until you dismiss them and you try and scroll and they come back or the ones that load 60 videos underneath Mm -hmm. an image. So you can't even tell, but your bandwidth is going like crazy. Your phone's getting hot and it takes longer to load the page. So there are all kinds of atrocious behaviors that make sense to block. Some people contend that the ones that are not atrocious should not be blocked. That's one controversy. What's the other controversy, Neil? Well, I mean, there's a controversy in just using them in general, because as you said, we pay bills by having ads. So, I mean, these came out last week with iOS 9. They were very popular. Um, the big issue was Marco Arment's app was pulled from the App Store and people were debating because he had a moral conflict over it. And it was tough for me as the managing editor at Apple Insider. I have to cover the news, right? I can't just ignore something. Not that I would want to ignore this story uh, to you know, you wanted to. No, I didn't. I'm not going to stick you my. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and act like it's not happening. I know that it's happening, and I have to cover it in a ethical and honest way to, uh, for the benefit of our readers, because they have a right to know. That's my job is to inform the readers first and foremost. So, but I, I mean, I can't really honestly write a news story about this when my entire paycheck that comes to me from my publisher is dependent on these ads that people are blocking. I have an inherent bias in this. So I decided... Well, you, you, you don't have a bias. You have a self-interest. Yeah. I, I mean, however you want to portray it. I, um, I, you know, I can't cover it objectively is really what it boils down to. And I don't write a lot of editorials. I'm not interested in doing that type of content. I prefer to stick to straight news. But this was an opportunity where I, I had to do it as an editorial and just kind of be frank with our readers. And um, 
the, the, you know, and basically just lay it out. And what I said in, in my editorial was, I understand as a user that there are some ads out there that are particularly egregious, that take over a page on your phone, that load slowly, whatever. And I get that. And I understand why some people want to block those. But there are some people, um, some of them are our readers, and I hate to say disparaging things about our readers because I genuinely am thankful for every person who comes and reads Apple Insider. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, but there are some people who believe that they are 100% entitled to block every ad that is on every website because they just don't like ads. And they, they feel like that's a perfectly... Uh, acceptable behavior. I could not disagree with that more. I think that that is uh, absolutely wrong. I don't think that you're entitled to do that. Uh, the content is not free. We have a hardworking staff of uh, yourself, Victor, yourself, Mikey, myself, and everybody else that works on our staff. Um, Dan, who was on here before, you know, I mean, he has to go and go out there at Apple and get his hands on the phone and all that kind of stuff, and he has to put his time into it. He's not doing it for free. He's got to work. And you got to get paid somehow. And there are a lot of problems here. Uh, the ads have gotten pretty bad on some sites. I'm pretty proud of Apple Insider's mobile site. If you go on a browser and you open it up, there are two ads on the page, and neither of them are particularly intrusive. If you go on our app, there is one iAd at the bottom of the page, not intrusive. If you don't like the ad on our app, you can pay for a subscription and get rid of it. And some readers didn't even realize that we had a subscription, read my editorial, and then emailed me to say, I'm now paying for your app. And that's great. And I love that. But for the rest of you who don't understand this, n most people are not paying for our app. And they wouldn't. And they never would. And in fact, if you read the reviews on our app, people are very angry that we would even think about charging a subscription for our app. And the particularly bad reviews on there are... Uh, say some pretty nasty things about us and the hard work that we do to provide the news every week. And it hurts me. It really <laughs> hurts me. But you know, I, I mean, people say, okay, charge a subscription. Well, we've tried it and most people don't want to pay it. So what you're telling me is that the only successful micropayments method that works is micropayments from advertisements. I don't handle the business side of things. I don't know what works and what doesn't. I am merely in charge of the content of Apple Insider. My publisher, who runs Apple Insider, decides what is good for business and how he would like to do things from a business perspective. As the managing editor of Apple Insider, I am solely in charge of the news content that we run on a day-to-day -day basis. I have no say on the advertisements that we run. I had somebody email me after they read my editorial and said they were ad blocking us because last year during campaign season, they were seeing ads for Mitt Romney on our website. Those ads are supplied by Google and they're showing up based on what you're Googling and what you're searching for. This guy is not always. I mean, not, I, I, not always because so, I mean, well, the, the Russian how... mail order brides, I did not search for that. I <laughs> keep telling yourself that. I. I don't know how the Mitt Romney ads got on this particular reader's website and the fact that he was bothered by these ads. I'm truly sorry that that happened, but I have no control over that. And my publisher doesn't even have control over that. The ads that appear on there are a lot of times based on your browsing habits. Now, a lot of people that commented are offended by the fact that ads show up based on browsing habits. I completely understand that. That's creepy that Google follows you around and stuff. I get it. <laughs> I mean, this is a complicated issue, and it's not as simple as oh, you should not use ad blockers. I understand why people do it. I get it. 
my issue is solely with people who feel like they are entitled to block all ads on the internet because they don't feel like they should ever be advertised to. I think that's wrong. Other than that, you know, we can have an intelligent discussion about this. This is not uh, a black and white issue. There are some sites that have some particularly egregious ads. I think we can all agree on that, right? On phone and on desktop and on tablet, right? Yep. Okay. I don't think when you look at our website, if you load it on mobile or you load our app, that it's really that bad. If you load us on the desktop, we have a, a fair amount of ads on there. And I've talked to my publisher about that. And I even mentioned this in the editorial, that we would like to scale some of those down. And there are some changes that have been made, some more obvious, some less obvious, to kind of scale that kind of stuff down. And I think that's a good thing. And that's a discussion that we've had where I've just kind of pushed back and said, come on, guys, the site loads too slow. And I don't mind being frank about that and being open and honest about that. I mean, that's why I wrote this as an editorial. But it's not as simple as some people think it is of just, oh, let's start charging a subscription. If we start charging a subscription, most readers aren't going to pay for it. And if you have an optional subscription to take away the ads, most people still aren't going to pay for it. And it really boils down to some people feel entitled to the content and they don't care. And they've even said it in the comments on the editorial I wrote. They don't care whether or not I get paid. How do you argue with that? Well, uh, if no one got paid, then they'd have zero content, and then right. they would start caring. But I think, I mean, it's the early on the ad industry really helped boost internet content. I mean, it, that's why it's here today. That's why free content is here. It's because right. of ads. Yes. But now it's become the the ads have morphed into this insipid beast that uh you know follows you everywhere. Right. That they're now bucking the system without you know realizing that this is kind of like biting the hand that feeds you I guess in some ways but now there are just so many uh, points of contact where you would be able to get content that I mean you can pick and choose I, I suppose but saying that you're going to you know just outright block everything and think that you're going to get everything for free is yeah. is kind of naive. I mean, uh, when you look at the logistics of it, it, this content comes from somewhere and very few things in life are free. And this is another thing that's not truly free. So, I mean, I personally, I would, I would, uh, endure the torture of a couple ads on websites that I visit a lot instead of, you know, just actually handing over a cold hard cash for it. It's a it's yeah. a fair trade for me to have my eyes uh, you know, ravaged by well, horrible even, ads. Well, even Chairman Gruber tried this, right? He used to have people subscribe to his RSS feed and that did not work for him as a business model, which is why he serves ads today. But his ads are are nice and, and they're <laughs> ethical and so well, much better than all so the let's, other So let's talk about the story that broke today. So this ad blocker Crystal, which was at the top of the app store and cost 99 cents, has now been accepting money from advertisers to allow their ads to go through. So the guy who makes Crystal has deemed himself the gatekeeper of which ads are acceptable to users and which ones are not. So this well, guy says – by virtue of acceptably being how much you pay on me. Right. I mean, how, you Give know, me my so money. this one guy has become the arbiter of, of taste in terms of which ads are too much. 
Well, I, I don't know. Is he applying taste as a criteria or is he applying how much cash he got? Well, th- as that's what we don't know, right? And I'm sure if you paid 99 cents for this ad, you didn't know that this guy was going to do this. So now he's getting paid from both sides. He's screwing over the advertisers and holding them hostage, and then they're paying money so that they can get through and say, oh, no, our ads are okay. I mean, it's, you know, there, there's no honor among thieves, I suppose. And you get what you get when you install one of these apps. I, I get why people do it, but. I would implore our listeners to please consider the ramifications of what you do. And I admit from my standpoint as an editor at a website that there needs to be change. The ads need to be reduced. They need to have less tracking, the option to opt out of the tracking. Um, They need to use less bandwidth. When you opt out of tracking, you end up with a situation like all the European websites where you get a modal before you go into the website. Yes. There are going to be cookies. Would you like to opt out of cookies because they can't track that you've already turned off the cookie because yeah. you said no, you're no tracking? It's absurd. You you agree that you're not going to you opt out. You're not going to use cookies. You get a dysfunctional website. I wonder what would happen. I mean, I know there's um, targeted ads are where the money's at, but what if companies like Google and um, all those all their subsidiaries and ad servers all the ad networks and stuff what if they just how much money would they be leaving on the table if they disabled targeted ads because when's the last time i don't know when the last time was that i actually clicked on an ad that even slightly pertained to me even if it did i don't know if i would click on it just google it yeah if i want to see something i will go well and when look you google do you click the first two links which are the ad supported links no i don't i don't but people like my parents do because the ads are deceptive and they look like they're part of the the search results they don't look like yeah. they're ads i wonder That's how much money, how they do it. how much so how much so aren't you guys time? a little bit hypocritical then because you're saying that you don't click on ads we're ad supported you believe in advertisements, but you don't click on them either in sites or in search results well, no because the ads pay based on impression yeah. I mean, it, I'm still seeing the ads and yeah. maybe perhaps uh, subconsciously later on in the day, I'll be like, hmm, you know what I could go for? A burger. And it's because I saw in a uh, McDonald's ad earlier on, on some website. But uh, what their advertisers are paying for are those impressions, not necessarily click-throughs, right? I mean, some are, some are obviously playing, uh, paying for people to actually visit their site. Others are just paying well, to get eyes I mean, off. at the core, it's about not just eyeballs, it's about converting to sales, right? It yeah, is, but eyeballs are a component of it. You're not obligated to buy something because it's been advertised to you. There's no moral dilemma in not clicking on an ad to me. I, I think that, and, and I think that, you know, a fair amount of readers, you see it on a lot of websites, you know, I've heard podcasts before, if you listen to some big time podcasts, they'll say, go through my website and click the Amazon link there and just do all your shopping that way, and I'll get a cut of whatever you buy whenever you browse Amazon. And a lot of listeners and readers are willing to do that kind of stuff because they want to support in some way content that they really like. And that's great. And for all the readers you know, who reached out to me and said that they would like to subscribe to the website or they have subscribed to the app, um, I think that's great. But Unfortunately, that doesn't apply to the vast majority of people on the internet. And there are some people who just feel entitled to free content. And, you know, I I used to work in the newspaper industry and got out of it for obvious reasons. Not doing very well right now. But if you look at a lot of the biggest websites on the internet, you know, your BuzzFeeds, your Huffington Post, places like that, 
you have a lot of uh, uh, aggregating of news, which we do a fair amount of as well. You have a lot of editorials, but you don't have a lot of original reporting at those websites. It's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a lot of hot air and a lot of reblogging, linking, whatever you want to call it. No, hot air is a different site, but regurgitating <laughs> content. For yeah. Sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of money to be made in those businesses and they're doing fine. But if you're talking about, you know, we cover Apple products. Okay, it's it's interesting to people, but it, compared to politics or uh, you know uh, international crises or something like that, we're pretty low on the importance scale. But if you want to look at where actual reporting is coming from, it's by and large coming from large newspapers like the New York Times, like the Wall Street Journal, like USA Today. It, that's where the money is being spent on reporting. And if you are a consumer and you or a voter or a, a citizen of the world, <laughs> you know, um, and you want to find out about these things, you have to – I mean somebody's got to pay for it is what it boils down to. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you solve this. I don't know how you fix it. I'm not saying that the onus is necessarily on people to buy newspapers or subscribe to our app or whatever. I, I, don't, I don't have the answers. I'm just saying that if we get into a culture online or in whatever form you read that you think that you're owed everything for free and that you shouldn't be advertised to or you shouldn't pay for it, you're not going to have good reporting anymore. You're not going to have quality reporters who have the time to dig and find the answers to things. And nobody's going to do that for free. Uh, it takes effort. It takes time. You need to have a business behind it. You need to have support behind it. And you have to find a way to make it work. And it's tough. So, Mikey, do you use any of these ad blockers? Have you put any of these um, content I've, blockers in place? Have you I've tried, tried them? them out? Yeah, um, and for the most part, they work. They strip websites of of um, horrible ads that were at one time, you know, cluttering things up. But uh, sometimes it breaks websites. I mean, that's the only thing that I've seen that is kind of troublesome. All right. So I saw that one, one of them of was readers. breaking uh, Walmart's website. You couldn't actually buy anything from yeah. Walmart or Sears if you installed it. You use the Walmart app. Come on. If you're <laughs> going to do it right, you install the Walmart app and purchase that way. So uh, Alexius Aditya asks, since Safari, Safari supports content blockers now, which one is the fastest and the most powerful to use? Do you have any perspective on that? I haven't tried them all out, but uh, I mean, Crystal's pretty fast, but... I mean, it's not, for it's not like other reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Morally, it's uh, kind of a <laughs> a sticky wicket. What about that Purify one? Have you tried that? Yeah, I mean, they're all um, they're all basically the same thing. I mean, they do the same thing. It, the The difference in speed, loading times, is negligible. Um, and really, if if you compare it with a decently served and hosted website, uh, it's, I don't, yeah. you might not be able to tell when the ads load and when you're stripping them out as far as... Right, you'd have to look at an activity monitor or a dump to see what is actually going yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, for other sites that have r really rich ads or uh, you know, even uh, you know, popovers or whatever, then you can tell, of course, obviously. Um, and it's really sluggish. And I guess yeah, Crystal does speed Crystal and Pacify or whatever. They speed those Purify. They speed that up. Um, but on the whole, they operate identically. And there's only a few differences between them uh, as far as user interface goes. So 
I mean, they're all about the same. Can't go there wrong go. with either one, I guess. At, at this time, they're very similar in performance, and feel free to use the one that you feel like best suits your needs and what you want out of one. I want to talk about Xcode Ghost, because this this was actually very scary to me in terms of, of what happens to iOS as a platform when things get out of hand. So I'm, I'm going to talk about what Xcode, Guest, Xcode Ghost is, and Neil and Mikey, I want you to correct me if I've gotten it wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. So the way that this works is as a developer, you use Xcode, you write your code, you compile your code. It's an integrated development environment, and you design your user interface, and then you use Xcode to build your app and sign it and then upload it into the App Store for review and publication. And Xcode Ghost is a situation where there was a malware-infected, a modified version of Xcode being distributed, largely around China, as I understand it. And this malware-infected version, this modified version of Xcode, caused apps to be malware-infected. And the idea that that malware-infiltrated apps made it onto the App Store and were available for download by consumers is really scary. That's one of the big benefits of Apple's ecosystem and closed App Store environment, as opposed to something like Android where you can sideload apps from anywhere, is that you presume that these things came from a pure build-compile state and have been reviewed by Apple and approved as safe, and nothing should ever bad make it to the public consumption App Store. And it did. Have I got that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Did that not scare the hell out of you guys? Mm. That freaks me out. I mean, there are yeah. tons of people who don't know as much as you or I do about our phones and presume that because it was available on the store, it's safe. And that should be the default presumption. And this stuff made it out there? Good Lord. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you read the uh, the GitHub post of the of the dev who supposedly created the um, the modified version of Xcode. I, I, he, I don't think he, um, he didn't make Xcode Ghost, but his source code was used to make a malware-infused version of it. And he supposedly was shocked that it, it made it past uh, Apple's filters or, and, and horrified that it did so. So I, I didn't read his post. Was he doing this as a as an exercise to prove whether or not something was vulnerable and didn't yeah, expect just a, to actually be a part of it? It was the, a demonstration. I don't even know if it was made public. I mean it was just he said it was his project, I think was his um was his terminology. So um I guess he was just tinkering around with it and someone saw value in it and end of story. But it's interesting since uh the way that it proliferated was uh, because it was uh, more accessible to Chinese developers than Apple's own official Xcode version from the Mac App Store because they didn't host it on Chinese servers. It was much easier to get this Xcode Ghost version. Now, than, um, see, this is why you use software and you host on 24 different servers around the world, and then it would have happened. <laughs> well, I think Apple is uh, not keeping it, didn't want it on China servers because... For of obvious whole, reasons. Yeah. yeah. Because of the whole... Chinese government stance on um, digital uh, data uh, property law. It's basically theirs when it's on their sovereign soil. 
so Apple doesn't want it there. But I guess they're going to have to host it, start hosting copies there now, after this. I wonder if it was a, a ruse from the uh, Chinese government to get them to... Uh, Force their hand a little bit? Yeah, could be. You never know. Jeez, Although I don't know why they'd want access to Xcode. I mean, it's not really I mean the whole story has fueled a lot of conspiracy theories and and rightfully so if you know anything about how the chinese government operates so no one knows how they operate so <laughs> so what has apple done to prevent this from reoccurring they are going to start hosting xcode on chinese servers uh they have published a list of affected apps the top not all of them they don't want to tell i don't think how many are because it would make the security breach seem worse because it's probably a lot worse than they're putting on but uh, they've only listed the top 25, and they say the vast majority of people with affected apps are only um, uh, using those top 25, uh, one of them being WeChat. But they're apps that are very popular in China. So um, presumably people update as normal on the App Store, and they'll get a build that was built with a proper copy of Xcode. Yeah. So whatever's, whatever's on the App Store now is, to Apple's knowledge, the most updated and right malware-free version. If the app is not on the App Store, that means that it's not updated yet. And the hope is that in the future, um, with faster download speeds in China, developers won't be turning to torrent sites or alternative servers to download Xcode, and they'll get the official copy. Um, should be, be noted as well that um, if you had an illegal copy of Xcode, you had to have uh, disabled the gatekeeper feature on a modern Mac that would identify bogus software so right but a lot of people disable that anyway just because there's so much software that you'd like to install that doesn't have a assigned developer correct but uh that's again part of apple's response to this is if you're running things the way we intend this won't happen so um kind of deflecting some blame there but they need to make the mac app store a lot better before yeah they, they really deflect do that blame they, yeah they really do but um I, you know this is this is I think the scariest thing for me is the fact that these made it onto the App Store. That's the that's the worst part because this is supposed to be you're supposed to trust whatever's in the App Store. You know, like um, there's a there's a very uh, long running thing with people using Windows computers that get an iPhone or an iPad. Uh, people like my parents, they got their first iPhone and they were like, "But I thought I shouldn't install software because it could be dangerous." Because, you know, they come from this Windows universe of be careful mm -hmm. what you install. We've trained people to be skeptical, and now we want to train people to be accepting. And, and so we're starting to train them to be accepting, and people just go crazy, and they install all these apps, and it's all's good. And now it kind of gives you pause, and it's like, hmm, maybe maybe I shouldn't be uh, installing whatever I find on the App Store. So, uh, yeah, it's not good for Apple. It was a, it was a pretty uh, big security breach for them, I think. So Apple has also... Tell me if I got this right. Apple issued uh, a method for developers to check their Xcode install to see that it came from the proper source? Yes. Okay. So there's a, we have you can a, get it from the correct server. You can check because they've issued a way to check to prove it. Yeah, you can read it. And our, all of the apps are updated, right? Yeah, our story lists, or lists the steps that one would need to take to... Um, check whether their version is legitimate or not. <laughs> right, and, and presumably if you're a developer, those steps aren't too daunting, so it's no, fine. No, it's, it's uh, simple. So, so is this kind of uh, 
a, a crisis that is now over? Well, we don't know, really. Yeah. The Apple hasn't really said you are, how... You are not reassuring at all. I was so ready for you to tell me. Oh, well, I mean, I don't think, thing. as consumers, I don't think we should ever be assured of anything. I think yes. we should always remain skeptical. That's the... If you really care about your data and basically your well-being these days, it, you need to be skeptical to a certain extent. You can't trust everything. And you can't really trust anybody with that data except yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, final blame ultimately comes on you, the user, really. Well, it's like the uh, uh, iCloud uh, celebrity hacks, right? Mm. Um, Apple took the brunt of that, um, and really what it came down to was people using weak passwords. But but that was a big PR issue for Apple, so much so that they've gotten a little more serious about security now and are making by default uh, two-factor authentication and stuff to make sure this doesn't happen, forcing people to go with more complex passwords and stuff. So security is a, is a complex issue. It's, it's more than just... Uh, it, it, it's, everybody needs to be conscious of security, from users to companies to every, everyone in between. Mm-hmm. Listener question. Brian O'Malley asks, Is the new Apple TV app store app store only? Or is there an enterprise deployment model that we've seen happen for iPad and iPhone? I haven't heard anything on that yet. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard anything either. I, my speculation is that there probably will be, but it's not certain at all. Because Apple TV in the business environment has always been kind of a, a, a possible and doable, and certainly they allow you to configure a, a conference room setting in Apple TV traditionally. But whether or not that translates to a enterprise deployment, we don't know. Yeah, I'm sure they will, what with the IBM type and everything. Um, well, and, and it makes sense. When I worked at IBM, we had a TV network that was driven off of, um, oh, God, I think it was like ThinNet that was originally over Token Ring. And, and they distributed TV to all of the corners of all the buildings. And it was an IBM internal TV network. So it makes sense to have that as a TV app for Apple TV kind of mm-hmm. thing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't see why not, why they wouldn't, although they could uh, just have a special section in the consumer app store, right? Yeah, totally. But but being able to distribute that rather than instead of putting it out there on the consumer app store, push it to your Apple TVs as a deployment, um, I would, uh, I would make sense on the same path yeah. that you deploy your corporate apps yeah. only within your corporation. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't want your yeah. your IBM internal TV network, for example, hypothetically, to be viewed by people. At well, with uh, TVOS, I mean, Dell. before the Apple TVOS wasn't really capable of doing something like that, so you'd have to just use it as a second screen kind of right thing. So I guess now with a real operating system that developers have access to, I, I would expect to see the same things. Um, from iOS and, you know, OS X. Right. So our verdict, we predict it, but we don't know. Yeah, I can see it, a lot of reasons for them to do it. It makes sense. So. Cool. Zach Dorsch asks, how will the iPad Pro stack up against the Service Pro? In terms of operating system, do you see iOS limiting users compared to full Windows? And how practical is the iPad Pro really when held up in portrait mode? Mm. I can't speak on that because I haven't held one in portrait mode. I think at all? No. It, de- it depends on the applications, right? If you're doing something where you're going to be holding it with one hand in portrait mode while you're standing around, then you probably want a mini or an iPad Air. 
Um, you know, every iPad to date has been designed to primarily be used in portrait mode. That's why the Apple logo on the back is displays properly when you're holding a portrait. Well, you don't you don't look at that when you're using it though. No, but you're advertising to everybody else that's looking at your iPad. So uh, from behind, so I I think. Um, generally speaking the preferred way of using an ipad has been portrait mode i think that's how most people read and browse etc uh you may see a shift with the pro just because of the size and weight of it uh slightly heavier than the first gen ipad it's just over one and a half pounds um i think you know for for lap use uh reading stuff like that uh portrait mode will be fine but obviously when in desk use i think most people are going to be using it in landscape mode right I think so. Like a laptop. Yeah, like a, like a laptop. And, you know, it was interesting. I saw uh, Geekbench comparisons yesterday on the iPhone 6S uh, A9 chip. And in a single core test, the iPhone 6S's chip is actually faster in a Geekbench test than, than the current MacBook, uh, the 12-inch the MacBook. So, I haven't talked to the, um, the Primate guy, but are, is the iOS – I know the – the numbers, the scores are arbitrary, kind of. Yeah, but they're supposed to be comparable across. Are they comparable? They're supposed to be, yeah. So that means that the A9X chip in the iPad Pro, which is even more powerful than the uh, uh, iPhone 5, 6S, is potentially going to be that much more powerful than the capabilities of the MacBook. So interesting to think about that uh the the iPad Pro could potentially be a more powerful mobile computer than the MacBook. Well, I mean, plus you add on the fact that it's running iOS and not OS X and you just Right. And it only needs to have 4 gigs of RAM and and you know, there's yeah, a lot but of But the the Zach's question, Zach's question was what about iOS versus Windows? Well, uh, I mean, that's an age-old question, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't put- I still don't think it's going to be as useful yet. I, we have iOS 9. It doesn't have that many. It yeah. has a slide over and split view, but I mean, still. Okay, well, let's put it this way. Surface RT is dead, so there's no comparison there. That was a joke. Windows used to be the predominant platform, but iOS has really taken over in terms of where apps are built for first, right? Um, somebody's going to build an app probably for iOS before they're going to build it for uh, uh, Windows 10, right? Uh, now, that depends on the type of app, of course. Uh, if you're talking about the latest version of Photoshop, you're not going to get all of that capability on your iPad Pro. So it depends on the kind of apps you're looking to run and what you're looking to do. I would say the same thing about the iPad Pro that I would say about uh, the MacBook. If you're not really looking to plug in a lot of stuff, um, if you want to do some word processing, uh, if you are doing things that take advantage of a touchscreen or a stylus, you're probably better off with an iPad Pro. If you need to run traditional Windows apps and more powerful traditional computing apps, then you're probably, at least for now, going to be better with the Surface Pro just because it has the capability to run those kinds of apps with a traditional mouse, cursor, whatever. Yeah. All right. The last question. When will the iPhone success release happen in Switzerland? Uh, well... Uh, it was uh, NXLOOO who asked this question on Twitter, and I looked up. Switzerland was among the second wave of iPhone 6 and 6 Plus countries last year. There were 22 of them in that wave. So Apple tends to generally stick to the same type of release schedules every year. So I would expect 
that the second wave uh, in early October would probably include Switzerland. So today's episode is brought to you by Wix.com. Used by 60 million people throughout the world, Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites. With the drag-and-drop builder and hundreds of designer-made templates to choose from, you can get your website live today, and it's easy and free. Go to wix.com and create your stunning website today. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor. We've had our good friend Dan out in San Francisco with the iPhone 6S. We've got Mikey. And if you want to buy Mikey Campbell as a service, Mikey, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, at MikeyCampbell.com. I'm sorry. At <laughs> MikeyCampbell81 <laughs> at Twitter and on AppleInsider.com. Brilliant. And the hardest working man in the content media business, oh. Neil Hughes, who, if Neil learns how to say Guten Morgen next week, we'll have him back. <laughs> Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can uh, find my postings on Twitter at this is Neil, N E I L. Nowhere else? You're nowhere I mean, else you can read me on Apple Insider. I had somebody who followed me on Twitter the other day and laughed and said, uh, you you look just like you sound is what they said. What is that supposed and to mean? I don't know. Sad. And my, my thought is was, that? is that a compliment or an insult? Probably an insult. <laughs> you know, if we want to get into it, there was a reason you didn't go on MSNBC. That is true. This uh, this red beard doesn't uh, transmit well over the airwaves. Amazing. Well, this has been our show. This is the Apple Insider Podcast. We hope you'll all join us again next week. Thank you.